Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. It's really crucial that we achieve herd immunity in order to protect the vulnerable and in order to put an end to the grave social and economic ills that have resulted from this pandemic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute. With me today is one of our fellows, Dr. Melissa Moschella, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy of the Catholic University of America and McDonald Distinguished Fellow in the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University School of Law. And again, one of our fellows, and we're very proud of that. So hello, Melissa, and welcome back to the Austin Institute. Thank you. It's great to be on the podcast. Yeah, and it's great to see you, although only remotely for now, only through a screen, but we look forward to having you here in person soon when COVID will be over. And hopefully talk- soon. Yeah, talking about that, that's exactly why we have you here. So what we'd like to talk about today with Professor Moscala is a very delicate and quite timely topic, which is the morality of COVID vaccines. Dr. Moscala recently published an article on this very topic for public discourse. And her expert comments have been reported by a number of other major news outlets that have interviewed Professor Muscala. So again, proud to reiterate that she's one of our fellows. I would start off our conversation by asking a very simple and perhaps preliminary question, which is why is why is it that some people have ethical concerns with the COVID vaccines? So that's a great question. So some people have concerns about the COVID vaccines because Some of the vaccines were developed, produced, and or tested using a cell line called HEK-293, which is thought to be derived from the kidney tissue of a fetus that was aborted in 1972. So those who are opposed to abortion believe that the use of that fetal kidney tissue fails to respect the equal dignity of the life of the unborn, and therefore that making that cell line was morally wrong. And so now they think that any research that uses that cell line or any products like vaccines that are developed with the help of that cell line are kind of morally tainted, connected to abortion in a problematic way, and therefore that to send a consistent pro-life message to avoid any involvement with abortion, one should avoid using HEC-293 and similar cell lines or any of their products. So that, in short, is the the kind of objection that many people have, that this cell line is connected to abortions. I just explained that in a very kind of measured way. A lot of the pro-life groups out there or pro-life activists who are concerned about this talk about this in much less measured ways and also much less precise ways. So you have somebody like Abby Johnson, you know, former Planned Parenthood worker who is, you know, now well known from the book and movie Unplanned, now a pro-life activist saying that, you know, these cells or these vaccines were, you know, quote, born on the back of aborted babies, you know, very imprecise language, since of course we're talking about immortal cell lines here. These arguments are wrong because we have to understand the science. And this is what's confusing about it is that the kind of layperson who doesn't understand the science will say, oh, 
these cells originally were derived from the tissue of an aborted fetus. Well, that means they're cells from an aborted fetus. Does that mean that my vaccine has cells of an aborted fetus in it? Does that mean that my vaccine is somehow kind of perpetuating the grave evil of abortion, right? That's, that's the picture that people have in their heads and that comments like Abby Johnson's, you know, make people believe about this. But the truth is that HEC-293 and similar cell lines, they're what you call immortal cell lines. So what happens with this is a researcher takes some tissue, modifies it biologically in various ways in order to get a cell line that just indefinitely reproduces itself. So HEC-293, the, the name comes from human embryonic kidney cells, HEC, H-E-K, and then 293 is the number of the experiment that allowed the cell line to be produced. In other words, they had to go through 293 experiments modifying the original tissue to get the cell line to continue to indefinitely reproduce itself. So that just gives you a sense of how far removed even the first generation of that cell line is from the original aborted fetal tissue that it was derived from. And now, of course, over half a century has gone by or about half a century has gone by. So you've got countless generations of an indefinitely reproducing cell line separating any current use of HEC-293 from the original aborted fetal tissue. So it's just very inexact to say that these vaccines are in any way made with or even tested on aborted fetal tissue or aborted fetuses. They're made with a cell line that half a century ago was derived from a modified version of cells that came from an aborted fetus. It's very far removed biologically. And could, it, could the argument be made, though, that if you were compelled to throw away all these things, right? So you have to disregard and pretend they do not exist, then people would be disincentivized, let's say, from continuing to do research on fetuses or numbers. Could, could that argument be made or is that a wrong argument? Well, that's a wrong argument if you're talking about the use of a cell line like HEC-293. Now, what's very important and what's confusing here is that using a cell line like HEC-293 is very different from the research that is ongoing and that I do believe is unjust that requires the use of new and fresh fetal tissue which typically, although it doesn't have to be, but typically in our current system is derived from fetuses killed through elective abortions. So I think that's unjust because that does create an incentive for more abortions. It does create a market for more fetal tissue. And so it's unjust to kind of perpetuate this unjust system, to give any incentives for abortionists or women thinking about abortions. Now, of course, women thinking about whether or not to abort are not thinking primarily about whether the fetal tissue is going to be used in, in research, but it may provide some method of, or kind of way to rationalize the decision and say, well, at least, you know, this can be used to benefit science or create cures. And similarly, you know, abortionists could rationalize their actions by saying, well, at least we're doing this in a way that will benefit science. And, and all of that, I think, is something that we want to avoid. And we certainly want to avoid compensating abortionists for fetal tissue, which technically is not legal. It's illegal to sell fetal body parts, but 
which we know from exposés that have been done is it's very common for Plant Parenthood and other abortion providers to sell fetal tissue. So you certainly don't want to engage in a practice that contributes to the abortion industry by providing additional financial incentives for abortion. So those are all the things that are wrong with use of new fetal tissue in research. But the use of a cell line like HEK-293 is completely different because it's an immortal cell line. It divides and reproduces itself indefinitely. So using it does not in any way create demand for more. It doesn't create demand for any new abortions or any new fetal tissue. In fact, there's a certain way in which it actually disincentivizes the creation of new embryonic cell lines because the way it works in science is knowledge is a very valuable thing. So you want to work with a kind of known biological material for your research. And so because, I mean, this, this particular cell line, HEK293, is the second most popular cell line in use in labs of basic science research. So it's ubiquitous. It's almost impossible to do research without in some way, at least indirectly coming into contact with it or using it because it's used not just directly, but it's also used to make molecular reagents that are required for research. So it's, it's all over the place. But using it more means that you actually disincentivize creating new fetal cell lines because we know so much about it. Researchers want to use the commonly used thing because it makes the, the experiments more replicable. It makes things more predictable because we already know how this cell line reacts. And instead, you mentioned in your article things that we do every day that we could avoid that are much more a direct contribution to the abortion market. Exactly. So, so the use of a cell line like HEK293 does not in any way contribute to abortion, incentivize abortion, or even imply approval of abortion. On the other hand, there are tons of things that we do without thinking on a daily basis that actually do, though very remotely, contribute to abortion, like buying you know, products as simple as Energizer batteries or banking with Chase. Those companies directly contribute to Planned Parenthood and hundreds of companies either directly or indirectly contribute to Planned Parenthood. Those companies are you know, among the biggest and most popular companies in index funds. So anybody who has a Vanguard or TIAA retirement account, which is almost everybody, right, uh, has money invested in companies that contribute to Planned Parenthood. Right? And that, again, that's, that's very remote cooperation with abortion. It's, it's clearly ethically acceptable to, to do these things, but because the cooperation is so remote, but it is actually cooperation. It does actually promote the abortion industry. Using a cell line like HEK-293 doesn't do that at all. So if we don't hesitate to have a Vanguard retirement account, we should hesitate even less, even less to use these vaccines. Yeah. And you mentioned other examples in your article on how things that we use today that are the result of unethical behaviors adopted in the past. That's right. For instance, the drug chloroquine, which is malaria treatment, that drug was developed through you know, grossly immoral experiments by Nazi scientists. They tested that drug in ways that were you know, very harmful to the people they were testing it on, concentration camp inmates and people in mental institutions. And you know, that's how we got the knowledge to make that drug. We still use that knowledge. Does that mean that somebody who uses that knowledge or takes that drug today 
is perpetuating these immoral research practices or approves of these immoral research practices? Not at all. Is it wrong to take that drug? Not at all, right? And we could think of countless other examples. You know, railroads that were built in the American South were built by slaves. Does that mean that riding on the railroad implies that you approve of slavery? Of course not. Does it perpetuate slavery? No. So it's not wrong to ride on the railroad. We deplore those past injustices, but that's in the past. And using the fruits of those injustices today, as long as it doesn't perpetuate the injustice or imply approval of it, is, is not a problem, morally speaking. Professor, well, thank you, because I think we told our audience, so the promise of the show right, is that they give us their coffee break and we give them some knowledge and they learn something. <laughs> so what they learned today is probably that COVID vaccine is out there for you. You're not contributing in any ways to abortion. So they should feel totally ethically fine in, uh, in getting a vaccine. And then on that front, I would have actually a different question always, you know, on the moral front, which is, is there think an obligation, a moral obligation to get a vaccine? Could we argue that there is one or not? I, I think that's a really important question. And I think that for, I mean, there, is, there are lots of considerations that need to be taken into account when you talk about a moral obligation. But I think that in general, people who are healthy, who don't have any particular reasons to fear medical adverse reactions to the vaccine uh, do have an obligation to take it when it's available for the sake of the common good. It's really crucial that we achieve herd immunity in order to protect the vulnerable and in order to put an end to the grave social and economic ills that have resulted from this pandemic. The only way society is going to get anywhere close to back to normal and restore jobs, restore the economy, help people to come out of isolation, help to end this situation that has caused, you know, huge mental health crises, particularly among young people. You know, there were statistics over the summer, one in four young people considering suicide. And that's been because of the lockdown efforts, the isolation, the disruptions to, to life and the economy. And those are terrible, terrible, terrible side effects of the public measures that we've been taking to prevent the spread of the virus. And the, the only way that we can be able to overcome that is to achieve herd immunity. And the vaccine is the way to do that. So I think it's that people need to seriously consider their obligation to the common good when they're thinking about whether or not they should take the vaccine. But should it remain a free choice in order for that also to be morally um, acceptable, uh, a free choice of the person? Or could we ever imagine, if not with COVID, or if not in this stage with COVID, but like, could we imagine um, other diseases or other conditions under which the state uh, meant to protect common good for everyone has um, the power to actually mandate vaccines? And if so, you know, when would that be the case? Well, the state already does that, of course, routinely with childhood vaccinations, things like, you know, measles, mumps, and rubella, and whooping cough that are required for children to be able to enter school. And so, you know, that's one way of ensuring that enough of the population is vaccinated against these dangerous and highly infectious diseases to have herd immunity to those diseases and prevent outbreaks. Unfortunately, there, there have been anti-vaccination movements as a result of fraudulent 
research papers that, you know, indicating connections to things like autism and so on that nonetheless have created kind of movements of suspicion about vaccines and so on, in addition to ethical concerns about the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, which uh, the rubella portion of that vaccine is also created with a cell line that was originally derived from aborted fetal tissue. So many people object to that for the same reasons that people are concerned about HEK-293. So, you know, for a variety of reasons, people, a lot of people have chosen not to vaccinate their children. And that has led to outbreaks in some places of these diseases that we had basically eradicated through the vaccinations. So it is reasonable for the government to mandate vaccines when that's required for public health. And, you know, a case of a seriously infectious and lethal disease that can't be controlled through voluntary vaccination is, is definitely a case of that. Now, COVID is, is a, I think, a hard case because it's not lethal for most people, right? The death rate for the vast majority of people is extremely low. So that makes it different from some of the other diseases that we have mandated vaccines for. And it's also different because in this case, the vaccines, I mean, though there have been trials and so on, we don't know about potential side effects of long-term use. Usually vaccines won't be approved for widespread use until you've kind of done years of trials and done trials first on animals before doing them on humans. And there was a reason to skip some of those steps in the process and speed things up uh, given the urgency of finding a vaccine. I think, you know, mandating should be the last option. I think uh, what is much better is public education campaigns, encouragement, maybe even inducements to take the vaccine. You know, so some people have said, well, you know, give, give people a kind of reward for taking the risk of being vaccinated, which is beneficial to the common good, and reward them by, say, allowing them to not have to wear masks in public or not have to practice social distancing, right? Give them a kind of official warrant <laughs> to lead normal life that those who don't have the vaccine wouldn't be able to do. It would motivate a lot of people to be able to uh, be willing to take the risk. So, I mean, I think there are kind of soft ways mm-hmm. of encouraging this. But, uh, at if, but education yeah. is better. And I think, you know, an article such as the one you wrote, which also shows, you know, you're a philosopher, but you show a lot of knowledge of the actual science before mm-hmm. daring to write, you know, is this moral or not moral? You know, also, I'm sure that audience picked how much you know about these things and how much you've read about the studies and what you call the fraudulent papers or like, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the movements that are just generated by ignorance. And so because of your scholarship, I think there is a linked question. So you published a book in 2016 with Cambridge University Press titled To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Mm -hmm. Rights, Civic Education, Children's Autonomy. So in the case of vaccines, let's assume it's not covid because COVID has these issues that you just described and about. Right. So in the case of another vaccine, are the parents the one that should always be the ones to decide or not? So that is also a complicated question. Parents are the ones who have primary decision-making authority for their children, right? They're the ones to whom it falls to make decisions about what's in their children's best interests. And the state should generally respect that authority because it's an authority that is pre-political, right? The, the authority that parents have over their children is not authority that's granted to them by the state. It's authority that they have 
by the very nature of that special bond uh, that they have with their children as the child's parents and the special obligation that they have to care for their children. So because it's their primary obligation to care for their children, they, they need to have the right to make those decisions about how to do that as they see fit, how to promote the best interests of their child as they understand them. So they need to have the right to make those decisions in line with their, their conscientious beliefs. But there are limits to that, right? Obviously, we don't allow parents to abuse their children, even if they believe that abusive behavior is actually good for their children. The state also has an interest in children insofar as today's children are tomorrow's future citizens and they're tomorrow's adults who are going to keep society going. So the state has an interest in ensuring that all children receive an education that is sufficient to enable them to be responsible, productive, democratic citizens. And the state also has an important interest in protecting public health. So if what the parents are doing with the view to their child's interest ends up becoming a threat to public health more generally, well, that actually creates a reason for the state to intervene. But I do think there should be opt-outs available for people who have religious objections, conscientious objections, to the extent that you can accommodate those objections without jeopardizing the goal of herd immunity to the disease. So could we say, Professor, that the state has this, you know, this power, it is entitled to do it when it becomes a threat. So what we actually want is to keep voting for the right person to represent us in the state because what we do not want is a state that will eventually mandate uh, vaccines that are truly morally compromised. Oh, yes, absolutely. We should, and, and we should be actively supporting people who would be willing to try to put policies into place to find ethical alternatives for procuring fetal tissue for research. And there are ethical alternatives. You could certainly get enough fetal tissue for you know, serious research projects that require the use of such tissue from spontaneous miscarriages or from non-viable preterm births with concerns about embryonic stem cell research. We could get the, the cells that we need for research from other sources like adult stem cells, umbilical cord cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. So we need to, again, to be kind of actively supporting ethical alternatives for those true injustices that are going on in the area of biomedical research. Absolutely. So I want to thank you very much, Dr. Muscala, for your time. It was a pleasure to have you here. I think and I hope it's the first of many times when you just come and discuss with us the work, that, what you're working on, your papers, your publication. I'm very grateful also for your ability to explain a difficult moral matter in simple terms. And I'm pretty sure that our audience today understood that if they're vulnerable, if there are reasons to get vaccinated, it certainly shouldn't have any moral issue with the present vaccines. And on the contrary, you know, the ones that are healthy and they could get it, probably, you know, they could feel that maybe, you know, they should do it. It would be a good, a good thing to do for others, for those, again, that are vulnerable and might not be able to get vaccinated in time. I'm also quite sure we kept the promise of the show and you know, everyone has learned more. I'm just curious, are you in line to get vaccinated? 
I'd be happy to get one as soon as it becomes available to me. Thank you very much, Dr. Mascala, and we look forward to having you again on our show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.